Hi, and welcome back to the Global Ideas Lab podcast series. Tonight, we take a deeper dive into health, geography, and data. My name's Lloyd Nash. I'm chair and co-founder of Global Ideas, and I'd like to welcome you to this lab, hosted by the University of Melbourne. Tonight, our discussion leads are Jack Barton and Claire Boulange from Oren, Australia's Spatial Intelligence Network. Big data has the capacity to positively affect global health by optimising healthcare and predicting and preventing adverse health events such as outbreaks of infectious disease. However, with the library of open source, big and spatial data constantly increasing, how can we ensure that this data is used effectively and ethically? In this Global Ideas Lab, our discussion leads and lab participants explore how urban planning can impact risk factors for chronic disease. They also investigate the synergies between the social determinants of health, urban planning, and the layout of our cities. This lab emphasises the need for improved and ethical data collection systems and the sharing of data between organisations and researchers with similar goals. By ensuring high-quality research through high-quality data collection, analysis and sharing, we can promote policy and decision-making based on the best available evidence in our quest for health equity in Australia and the world. So please enjoy the following discussion with Jack Barton and Claire Boulange as they unpack big data and spatial data and how it can be used to achieve the third UN Sustainable Development Goal of ensuring healthy lives and the well-being of our global citizens. Um, tonight, our discussion leads from Oren. First presenter will be uh, Dr. Jack Barton from the Urban Data and E-Research Facilitator from Oren, Australian Urban Research Infrastructure Network. And Jack is focused on developing urban decision support systems and leads Oren's outreach program, collaborating closely with research industry and government stakeholders across the country. Uh, Jack initially trained as an architect and progressively moved into the areas of urban design and planning support systems. In his PhD, he developed a spatial decision support system for the management of public housing, assisting in the sustainable development of built environments and, more importantly, the communities that live there. He's managed his own consultancy for over a decade, specialising in 3D geospatial mapping, community and animation projects. His clients have included City Futures Research Centre, City of Sydney, National Parks and Wildlife Service, New South Wales Department of Housing, Shelter New South Wales, the Pan-Asian Olympics, Urbis and SGS Economics and Planning. Um, so let's welcome Jack. So I'll just show you some of the things that we've, um, we've been doing at Oran. We're an infrastructure network. We're a federal government initiative. Our head office is just over there in the University of Melbourne. We um, deal with uh, getting, um, we get uh, data agreements with different data custodians and give them to uh, researchers um, uh, at no cost and uh, covered by a data agreement and often these data sets contain, you know, they, they might be open data, about a third of our data is open data, um, but then again they might be more restricted um, data sets just because they're, um, you know, they've got privacy uh, concerns which we have to um, make sure are dealt with or um, uh, security issues or um, even just expensive data sets that we acquire on behalf of urban researchers. We put it all into one big um, system and uh, expose different disciplines to data they might not have access to as well, which I think is an important thing. So rather than just sort of working with the, the data that you're familiar with, you might be exposed to traffic data or um, disease data or, or something else, you know, and you can start to look at correlations and mapping it out importantly so you can see spatial patterns. 
We're looking at a case study in um, Salisbury North in Adelaide, which is one of the most disadvantaged areas in Australia. And we looked at 400 metres from the bus stop and uh, there was a good coverage across the whole area, except there's one little gap, you know, and we kind of thought, well, what's that? You know, it um, might be a graveyard or a substation or something like that. So we turned on the aerial photograph underneath it and it was a high-rise public housing building that, didn't, that weren't within 400 metres of a bus stop. So we used that as a case study to you know, say, well, if you had money to put one bus stop anywhere, where would you put it? You know? I mean, and these things, it's, you know, it's, it sounded very convenient, but I mean, it just happens all the time. I mean, you know, doing a PhD with public housing, you know, you constantly had, you know, the public housing, you know, community here, a big motorway here, and the shopping centre here, and a footbridge up there, you know. And so if you said, you know, if you just looked at the map, you might say, oh, it's no worries, you know, you're close by. But then if you actually do a proper network analysis like this, you'll see that there's a a geographic disadvantage at a, at a smaller scale, you know, and so to always just overlay spatial information is um, really revealing. Just showing a pretty picture is so much better than a 38-page PDF. This is Jon Snow's uh, map of the uh, London cholera epidemic in 1854. And this is often, it's not the first, I mean, spatial information goes back to the very dawn of humanity as a species, you know, where the, the kangaroos were or whatever. But this is, you know, often in your um, GIS 101. There was an epidemic of cholera. As a person living in a terrace in London in 1854, you either knew that someone in your family was sick or not. You know, what else could you do, you know? Like, and for you know, your neighbour might suddenly become sick. You don't know what's going on. Back then they thought that disease was, um, you know, kind of carried through the ether or whatever, you know? There was no sort of real science around it. What Jon Snow did is went through every single place where they'd had a case of, of uh, cholera. And so each of those little dots represent a place with, that's um, had an outbreak of uh, cholera. And uh, whenever there's another outbreak, he'd, he'd put a little uh, dot back from that, that residency. So you can see there's a big clustering around here. Like that, that's, and sure enough, if you zoom in and look at that, there's a pump uh, up in the top right there. There's a uh, water uh, well. There's a whole lot of outbreaks of cholera around that pump. And today that pump is famous. Um, it's still there and there's these plaques and things saying, you know, just to read that, Dr. John Snow, founding father of epidemiology in 1854, his research linked deaths to the water pump near this site and thus determined that cholera is a waterborne disease. <laughs> and so that, you know, gives us a lot of ideas about what you can do with spatial data and putting it together to form information that you wouldn't have otherwise gleaned. Uh, here's a project I did with Ahuri um, a few years ago. This is where we actually had access to the point level crime data and then interviewed people in the different communities and asked them to circle areas where they perceived areas that were unsafe during the day or safe during the day, as this one shows. Uh, so the more people that circled, the bluer it became. And um, then, um, you know, people that felt an area might be safe at the night or unsafe in the night. So whatever their perceptions were, we could then overlay the actual crime data and see how, the, how it interacted. And in some cases, yeah, sure, there were areas that people thought were safe 
and the crime data showed they probably were safe. You know, there are other areas where they thought, you know, they 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 might have been dangerous, and, and there may not have been actually any crime data. It might have been somewhere like a nature reserve at night time. People simply didn't go there, so there's no opportunity for crime or or antisocial behaviour. Um, but you might actually find somewhere where um, people um, uh, perceived to be um, unsafe, and they were safe. Sometimes like tightly knit public housing communities where you might have you know, a lot of good passive surveillance and people to report crimes and you know, good positive activity like that. Or you might have some areas that people perceived to be safe but were actually unsafe. And what we found here was that it tended to be things like um, shopping centres and car parks and things where um, you had you know, lots of um, opportunities for crime and antisocial behaviour and uh, um, maybe not so much passive uh, surveillance. So here's the, um, we've already had a, a bit of a warm up to this. This is the uh, 17 uh, sustainable development goals. One little companion initiative uh, to this, which is the International Standards Organization's quality of life indicators. So this was an international standard um, uh, released in 2017. And um, there's a whole lot of metrics here for um, being able to measure quality of life indicators in areas of human habitation internationally, which is important. So a lot of times you might have this quality of life stuff where, um, you know, it might be a monocle journal or something that might be driven by more of a first world agenda trying to, you know, Spruik one city as being more livable than the other city, you know, based on the quality of it, the perceived quality of its coffee or the number of nighttime open air cinemas they might have or something like that, you know. But the ISO 37120 really can get in there and um, help with benchmarking and identifying areas that are um, that might be um, substandard or, and require um, uh, attention. And different cities across the world can. Um, get uh, accreditation with the International Standards Authority to, to um, see how they rank and, and, um, and score with all of these different indicators. So we've got economy, education, energy, environment, recreation, safety, shelter, solid waste, telecommunications and innovation, finance, fire and emergency response, governance, health transportation, urban planning, wastewater, water and sanitation. So this deals with things, some of the indicators are like, you know, is there open burning of rubbish in the streets, you know, and, and um, yeah, that is still quite commonplace, you know, and, and has a lot of effects with water quality, air quality and things like that. Um, uh, you know, water and sanitation, the quality of the drinking water or, or the lack of, you know, open sewers or, uh, you know, um, uh, different ways of metrically measuring how these things are happening. Importantly, with uh, health, they've got an indicator. By the way, you can Google this pretty easily and see the breakdown of these indicators. There's one there for um, the number of doctors per 100,000 of the population. So you can see, you know, that's a good metric to measure. But then you've also got the number of female doctors, you know, or the percentage of female doctors to male doctors. So, you know, if there's a, a good healthy 50-50 split there at least, you know, you'd think there's, that's a good balance. Um, but if there's something funny happening where you might have 5% female doctors or I don't know, you know, it'd, it'd be something a bit out of kilter there. It wouldn't be a very good indicator for the quality of life in the area. We'll get a bit more practical right now. I'm going to introduce you to a few concepts that I've been flagging um, 
So we'll introduce you to a uh, basic uh, GIS viewer that's openly accessible. This is Auron Map. This is our online GIS web viewer. What we're looking at here is the effect of averaging out a number across a bigger um, uh, aggregation. And so that's um, often referred to as the ecological fallacy. Um, and now that's important to remember when you're dealing with aggregated data. It's the socioeconomic index for areas. It doesn't mean that every single person in that area is disadvantaged. You might look at the SA2 scale and see that it averages out. It might actually be a very disadvantaged community, but the uh, general manager of McDonald's lives there in his McMansion and is, you know, artificially raising the, or, you know, unfairly raising the CIFA score for the area. So you want to, when you're dealing with aggregated data, it's always good to keep that in mind. Um, I'll quickly just go through uh, Vampire. I won't do, we won't do an interactive session. Vampire is the vulnerability assessment for mortgage, petroleum, income, inflation or interest, risk exposure. So this is a way of measuring geographic disadvantage um, that counters the notion where you might say, well, okay, if we've got a problem with housing affordability, just move further out into the suburbs until you find a price point that you deem to be affordable. It's not as easy as that. Based on the census data, you can click into that and see that how many people uh, have their journey to work in a car, how many have more than two cars or two cars, what the average income is for that area, what the average mortgage is, what then calculate ratios like income to mortgage ratio. If you look at this over the years, the actual um, resilient or less vulnerable areas are shrinking. Look, I mean, although you might pay more to live in these areas, you're paying less and you're less vulnerable to changes in petrol prices. Um, you typically, based on the census data, you've got, a, you've got a more expensive house, but you've got a greater income and you've got more equity in that house. You know, that is, like I said though, that is eroding you know, because we've got a, a you know, mortgage problem. Um, but um, yeah, so that's a way of capturing geographic disadvantage. So then think about how you might overlay health data on top of this as well. Anyway, um, probably that's enough of my gas bagging and, and then have Claire after. So uh, Claire is a, a postdoctoral research fellow at RMIT University and she's part of the Healthy Livable Cities Research Group. Her background is in urban planning. Claire's research spans the urban planning and public health disciplines, focusing on how city planning, urban data and smart analytics can support the creation of healthy urban environments. Claire is an expert in spatial analytics tools and planning support systems. In 2016, Claire was awarded the Outstanding Student Project Award by the Planning Institute of Australia for her walkability planning support system, a computer-based interactive tool that allows users uh, to sketch precinct plans on a digital map and instantly see the associated walkability impacts. So welcome, Claire. So you might have picked up from my accent that I was born in France. Um, that's where I did my undergrad and uh, my master's. And I've traveled a fair bit. So I've lived in Vietnam and I've lived in Japan. And um, so I did a bachelor in geography and a master in urban planning. And through those travels and those exposure to different cities, and also, I guess, coming from France and knowing about Paris and this big divide between the suburbs and inner city, it really got me thinking about um, social equality 
and also the impact that cities have on our health. And probably the most yeah, striking thing was living in Vietnam, kind of thing. We're having dinner sitting you know, on this little stall on the streets and you're right exposed to this um, gas emission from all those motorbikes and you start thinking, wow, you know, if we keep going this way with more motorization, what's going to be the impact on people's health? And that's kind of really got me thinking about those pathways between how you design a city or people travel through the city and how our health get impacted. So I kind of became that, you know, token urban planner, hang out with all the epidemiologists and all the public health people and kind of trying to pick their brain and learn about how those things kind of interact. And so I'm sure I picked up from the audience, a lot of you are into kind of public health sort of thing. So imagine you're familiar with that uh, diagram, which is the determinant of health. How those two things interact, how do cities affect our health? And as you can see on this diagram, there's a whole range of factors that are going to have an impact on your health. The thing that are really individual, it's your, your age, um, whether you're male or female, and also your genetics, things that you got from your parents. And then there's all these individual lifestyle factors, whether you're a smoker or not, um, amateur exercise, those sort of things. And then on top of that, there's all the social and your community network and how you live and how you work, your education, um, the food production in the city, in the country and where you live. So I just mentioned Japan. You can imagine now since um, the tsunami and all the nuclear crisis, you can imagine that the food production over there is quite impacted. So that can then, you know, percolate and affect people's health. So that's kind of where I see myself as, as an urban planner who's passionate about improving people's health and also about um, social equity is that I can see that I've got a huge role to play as an urban planner in kind of making sure that by design we're not compromising people's health. And, um, and I guess the focus of tonight is really to talk about spatial data. And from spatial data and all this information out there, what you can get is some evidence that you can actually address this problem before they occur. Um, so we've seen that in your 50s, 60s, we've started building those crazy suburbs and big public housing and we're thinking, oh, we're going to fix all the problem, but we've created so many. I think today we're in a really exciting time because we've got so much information from our GPS, from our phones. We know where people go. Uh, we can track all those sort of things. We've got much more accuracy so we can avoid those kind of problems now. So I think it's quite, quite an exciting time to be working in that sphere. Uh, so I won't go into too much detail about NCDs. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. So that's really the focus of my work at the moment is um, working on non-communicable disease, which are the leading cause of death and disability in cities. So NCDs capture cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, mental illness. They're highly preventable. So if you avoid alcohol, if you're physically active, um, adopt a healthy diet, um, yeah, avoid tobacco products, then you can avoid many of those disease. The problem is that the way we live now in this sort of environment, we're actually making it really hard to adopt this healthy lifestyle just because the way we've designed the cities. How many of you commute by bike every day? How many walk? How many drive? So, you know, this kind of thing, it's... There's one part of it that it's, it's your choice. You might prefer to ride or you might prefer to walk. But there's a lot of things that it's not a choice. It's just because there's no other alternative. You just live too far and you just have to hop in your car. But 
you know, if you do that for years and years and years, then you really reduce your bodies to be physically active and then you really increase your chance of getting those disease. So there's part of it that it's an individual choice, but there's a massive part of it, which is the design of the city, which is impacting that. So the focus of my research has really been around physical activity and we call that incidental physical activity. It's funny because I've got a, a grandma who's about to turn 90 and she walks every day. And for her, it's like, it's a no-brainer. She, she doesn't watch a diet. You should see what she eats. It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, chips and all of that. But she, like, she walks every day and she's like, yeah, that keeps me healthy. And, um, and yeah, it's, I always have her in mind when I think about the importance of this kind of daily movement. And I think what's really striking in those cities now is that um, we see a lot of people who don't get that really bare minimum of physical activity, um, just as I said, because, because the design doesn't allow it. And we know it's going to have some really dramatic consequence um, since a long time. So there's different ways of increasing your physical activity. Um, there's a form of organised physical activity, so it might be you know, doing sports, um, but the very important one is to actually being active just to go to places, um, using walking as a mode of transport or using cycling. Um, and that's been kind of the focus of my research is how do we make that happen? And um, how do we design cities that actually are more pro-pedestrian, that, you know, pedestrian-oriented, that car-oriented? So that's really called active living. So that's a big focus on on research. Again, these kind of pictures kind of shows you on the left, um, if that's your daily commute, um, that's going to have such a negative impact on your health. I mean, you know, you can be knocked over on your bike and, you know, your chance of surviving are pretty small, but still, <laughs> if you survive, <laughs> um, we know that it's really good for you, right? <laughs> um, so the research has been quite extensive in that field and there's been a lot of stuff going on um, in Australia but also in the US and in Canada. And to kind of really try to impact um, what is it in the city that makes it easier to walk or to ride. And, um, and we got to the stage where we've got some actual guidelines to, to design a neighbourhood or to design um, at a building level or at a city level what you should do to make it easy for those things to happen. Um, the active design guidelines from New York were kind of one of the first big, um, kind of really user-friendly and very inclusive, uh, very evidence-heavy. Um, so every single recommendation is linked back to a reference from a study that found some association. The association has kind of like um, graded in terms of strong association, medium or not so evident. Uh, so a really, really good resource, which I invite you to, to have a flip through because um, it kind of really covers a big picture. And uh, very recently launched the Healthy Active by Design by the Heart Foundation, uh, which is really designed to be a hub of knowledge. So if you log into that platform, then you can read about all the papers and all the different kind of studies that have found some association and what do we recommend in terms of what would be the optimum density, for example, to support uh, social interaction or for supporting walking? Um, how many trees do you need? What are the difference between, because we imagine um, adults and children interact differently with their cities, so it's kind of look at that as well, difference across age groups. So very interesting kind of resources which are built on all this uh, research that's been happening. 
And I guess to kind of come back to the spatial data which um, Jack talked about, um, what is very interesting now is that with project like Orin, as researcher, we've got access, and just with Google, we've got so much information about what's happening in places on the ground. And you can collect all this information and start building indices to kind of um, describe what is happening in terms of walkability or health friendliness of an area. And so the walkability measure is, um, is a measure to describe how well the built environment will support walking. And uh, the most common is called the walkability index, which is built on three measures. One is land use mix. So it's look at how much diversity of land use do you have across an area. So you only have houses, so that's going to be 100% residential. That's a very poor land use mix because you've got just one choice. If you've got a little bit of house, a little bit of park, a little bit of shops, a little bit of industrial zone, then it's a much mixed area, which we found in research is much more supportive to walking just because it's more interesting and there's places to go to. If you only have house, well, there's nowhere to go to. So you've got that measure, and then you've got the road connectivity, which is looking at how much roads are connected to each other. Um, because there was this big trend in the, I think it was in the 80s, where they started building all those cul-de-sac, um, which was those kind of dead-end roads, um, which might be nice when you live at this end because you've got less traffic. But as a pedestrian, it's, a very, it's, it's not a good experience because to go to places, you have to do such long ways to go across. Uh, so it actually stops people from walking. So looking at how much connected the streets are is also an important measure. And finally, we look at the density, which is kind of a proxy of the more people you have in a place, usually it kind of represents the more opportunities or shops or sort of things you have. So that's been the traditional walkability index. And um, as part of my research in my PhD, what I try to look at is more in a complex system thinking kind of way. Um, of looking at different elements that might also affect your walkability. So I looked at a range of destinations that might be interesting, um, looking at proximity to the supermarket, looking at public transport, and bring that all together. And uh, we found some interesting results that actually uh, the more destination, the more choices you have, the more likely you are to walk, and also that access to public transport is very important, so you need to have more kind of things in the mix. Another one which is quite famous is the walk score. What is interesting, I, I took that little snapshot, is that it kind of shows you, it's come, come from rent.com.au, and you can see now that there's um, a strong correlation between you know, the value of a place and its walkability. So we can see that people are quite attracted to this walkable, to this walkable neighborhood. And it might be not only because it's their pleasant place to live, but um, yeah, because they support your health and also maybe because there's quite a lot of um, social things happening there. Um, so it's quite interesting to see that the real estate market is quite interested in that, in that measure as well. Another piece of work which is quite interesting uh, for the SNAMETs, uh, which is also an index uh, based on different spatial measures. So they looked at um, the accessibility index for public transport. And what you can see also picture from Melbourne is that you've really got two Melbournes there. You've got a very connected, accessible, um, where you can go to many places by public transport. And then you've got those really big gaps where you've got area where 
the public transport service is such so low that people have no other option to actually have a car. So you can imagine the consequence down the track on their health. And I was also asked today to talk a little bit about um, the northwest metropolitan region in Melbourne. I don't know if you're familiar with this area, but that's the fastest growing area in Melbourne. And I guess uh, probably something to kind of wrap up about what we talked tonight about data. So urban planners face a massive challenge because they're building new estates in paddocks. There's nothing. And, um, and I guess the big question is, how are we going to design something that's going to be performing well in terms of health and well-being in 10, 10, 15 times? And that's where it's very important to start off, bring those data and those evidence that we have and all those model, modeling the association between built environment and health um, to actually prevent the construction of things like this that might actually not perform so well in 10 years because as you can see in that picture, um, can't even see a shop there, it's just like hectares and hectares of houses. So the opportunities in terms of you know socializing, being out and about and walking and just having my grandma's lifestyle, you know, of eating whatever she wants and just walking it off, well, it's not gonna happen there. Just just by design it's it's not right there. So I think that was kind of my talk tonight was to kind of get you thinking about this is how place and health interact. And I guess Jack kind of opened your eyes to all this crazy amount of data that we've got access to, and Orin is a great resource to kind of start seeing all this information. Um, and I guess, yeah, we, we're in an age which is very exciting because think about everything is spatial now. Um, you know, we wear GPS in a pocket all the time, um, and the opportunity is to kind of better understand those pathways. Oh, I think enormous, so I think it's the exciting time. Okay, so rather than throw you into this full-on like hackathon kind of event, let's just say you were kind of a bit more literate with data and could augment your existing work even more with spatial data than what you're doing now. What are some of the questions that might be relevant to your um, area of study or work where spatial data can help? And um, how could you, um, you know, what sort of hypotheses could you come up with this data? We might, I don't know if we actually, you know, if you've come up with it, but you might see there was a, if you looked at the map of type two diabetes and CIFA, uh, so disadvantage, you can clearly see that there's a higher rate of diabetes in the more disadvantaged areas. What does that mean? You know, what sort of hypotheses can we come up with there? And um, we were, you know, I don't think we'll spend too much time doing this because we could sort of fall down a black hole, but what data can you find online already? You know, there's a lot of stuff. You can um, have a look at all our data sets in Oran through data.oran.org.au. Um, National Map is being touted as a sort of a a good portal to go to, although it's not very heavy in the analytics, but you can get a lot of data through there. So maybe just write them down if you want, or I can send you the PowerPoint if you need. Um, but also data.gov.au, and generally there's data.gov, you know, there's um, data.nyc.gov, which has got every footprint of every building in New York City, um, and, you know, all sorts of interesting data repositories are being opened up online. Um, just during the break, we we're talking about OpenStreetMap, which is an excellent source of open 
crowdsourced, you know, it's like Wiki, Wikipedia meets uh, Google Maps, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of online kind of um, data you can get. And then, you know, just a few other questions, you know, what data, you know, can't you find online but you wish you could get? And, um, you know, what might be some of the privacy and security risks? I guess thinking about that sort of question, I've got a, a colleague who did a PhD and she looked at access to uh, health services and it was kind of thinking about these accessibility measures and what she looked at, she compared. So she did this um, using the spatial tool. You can run this little network analysis and see how you can get to those points. And so she compared different mode of transport. And for example, this person who needs um, kidney, um, is it dialysis? Yes, uh, for those people who need kidney dialysis, there's like few spots in Melbourne that you need to reach and how long it would take for this person to get by public transport or by car. So you can start using this approach to create your own data. Sometimes the data doesn't necessarily exist but with those tools, you can start building those indices. I think like in the last few years, what I found very exciting in working in a very multidisciplinary team with people who have very strong spatial knowledge is that they might not necessarily work in house, but you can pick their brain and kind of see how they approach things and, and say, oh, actually, that might work. You've been looking at bees and how bees travel across the city, but actually this approach apply to people as well. So I think um, what we found in, in kind of urban research is that nowadays the cities, I mean, they just touch on so many aspects of transport, of housing, of health. You have to be multidisciplinary and you can't work in your silo. So kind of building those, those big teams is quite, quite exciting, I think, and can help you. The beauty of, about geographic information systems is that a lot of the data is just really interoperable. Um, and this is um, QGIS. See up the top there? QGIS. Everyone write that down, go home, download it. It's free, open source. It's owned by RGIS. It costs a fortune. It's very buggy. Where QGIS is for free and it works a million times better. So yeah. save your money. By all means, you can use map.org that we used. You can, if you've got an edu or .gov, you can log into the Oran portal, but also, and, and contact me, I mean, get my email or card afterwards, but um, QGIS is just, um, yeah, really, it just, it's, it's great. It's, a bit, it's not as scary as ArcGIS. I mean, you can see it's just like, a bit like, I don't know, like some weird kind of Photoshop or something, you know, you've got pan and zoom and stuff, you know, but it, um, you know, download spatial data and then you can just, you know, start using it, you know, and, um, you know, they might be, see those dots, they might be needle exchange places and then you go into OpenStreetMap and you can pull out the, the um, street network and, you know, so this is open data, what, it, it, yeah, it's open source software and then open source data but also closed data that you might have to acquire in different ways, you know, so, yeah, that's... And, and there's, there's a really good user community around the whole thing, you know. It's, um, there's a big community of, of developers and nerds and practitioners and, you know, heaps of tutorials. And if you don't know how to use it, just Google, you know. How many of you use uh, statistical packages on, like, a pretty regular basis to use, like, Stata, SPSS, any R user? R is another good... It's an open-source sort of 
equivalent of SPSS, yeah. you know? Sorry, we're all about open source because yeah. we find, you know, you might as well it's give you money to great. pay salary instead of paying license. Yeah. So, um, ours also becoming more and more spatial. So, ours allows you to do some statistical analysis with some spatial dimension in it. So, you can start computing some average by area. So it can read those kind of shape files showing you different polygons representing different postcodes. So you can start interacting with this area, this sort of thinking, um, which is very, very good. This is actually, just pulling out the legend here, this is from the National Health Services Directory and it was to start to work on a project where we're looking at um, domestic violence, which is famously an underreported issue, um, you know, which is subject to all sorts of you know, people, you know, people not coming forward or hiding things or misinformation and things like that. So it had to work with proxies. So we've got actual registered health services from the health services directory where we can start to look at family violence counselling, you know, and, you know, different types of, you know, bereavement counselling, crisis counselling, and areas where we can then get a, a sort of a medium level understanding of where those services are, maybe approach them directly and ask for, you know, to talk to them or find where the gaps are, where, you know, you, and then overlay that with other stuff like, you know, I don't know police records or, um, you know, different shelters or something like that, you know, telephone counselling, things like that. Um, so, yeah, open street map lines there. No, I have a question. I'm interested to know how quickly this field is evolving. I mean, clearly the technology is changing, the speed of processing, the capacity to store data in the cloud. Um, has uh, your work evolved over the last five or ten years and in what, um, in what, what has changed uh, that makes a, a dramatic difference to what you can pull from these data sets? My take on this is that the technology part has been done. There's no longer any techn technical constraints and now the thing is to make it more usable and accessible and discoverable and to help um, the rest of the non-techie people understand how to use it. I think what I've found is that um, like since I started, I started my PhD that was like four and a half years ago. So I finished now but when I started it was kind of, you know, we're processing about a thousand points. Now it's pretty routine that I process a million points. So we kind of really upscale stuff and just because we've got better processors and also just the scripting kind of capacity. So we can process so much more data. In one way, it's kind of overwhelming because now we can access all that stuff. It's just like, oh, what do we make out of this? How do we interpret that? And as I said, everything is spatial. Like, you know, go onto a McDonald's website and you can pull out all those addresses and you can figure out where all the McDonald's are. But then it's like, you know, you're lacking students or research project to kind of look at what are the consequences in terms of health. So you could start looking at the proximity to schools and uh, the concentration of fast food outlet in disadvantaged community. I mean, the questions are endless. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of like really upscaled. See, we, we, you hear the phrase big data and, you know, often the, the way, you know, the way to describe it is VVV, you know, high volume, high velocity, variety and, and value of data. Um, and so, it, you know, this is the, you can't read that, but this is the IBM's description of it. And so we're getting, as Claire just said, you know, you're getting so much data. It's like, what the hell do you do with it? Like well, I said, there's no technical constraints, really. I mean, it's more about what to do with it. But then you've also got this issue of ethics, 
you know. So this is, uh, a, a, you know, we can give you that reference later if you send me an email or something, but 10 simple rules for responsible big data research. Because now we're starting to get into the point where you've got massive threats on our privacy, you know, and security, um, but, you know, also just a great capacity to do good with the data as well, so to reduce harm and encourage good. So these are a good little 10 things, you know, practice ethical data sharing, debate tough ethical choices, you know, design your data and systems for um, auditability. Um, you know, know when to break these rules. It's a good little paper, that 10, 10 things. And um, then uh, just as a quick little way to, to um, maybe, um, you know, just talk about some of the funny sort of ethical things that happen with data is uh, and open data. Um, a while ago, through the uh, Freedom of Information Act, a uh, guy in New York got a whole lot of data for, actually a shitload of data, like it was like 20 terabytes of data for the New York City's um, uh, taxi um, network, where, um, and um, they didn't de-identify the data properly. They thought they'd changed the actual little number of the taxi, which you can see on every cab. They thought they'd turn that into a code. But one little guy worked out that the numbers on the cabs had a structure. They were like six digits. Sometimes they were zero padded, meaning they had zeros at the front. So if they were like four digits, they had two zeros that you wouldn't see. And then they could work out the, the encryption to, for the encryption being the, the output and the, they could reverse engineer the input. And within like a few hours, the, the nerd community had found all the taxi rides, cross-referenced that with Flickr Instagram photos of celebrities getting out of taxis, found the little number which you can see on each of these photos of the taxi, and then come up with a database of which celebrities were the most generous or stingy tippers. So that's one problem with open data, is that you might release data that you might think be de-identified or whatever, but when you compare, to, cross tabulate two of these data sets together, you can start to tread really sensitive territory. No well, no one was hurt, you know, that's, well, that's it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> But so, yeah. I'm all about open data. Yeah, yeah, no, look, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I don't want to scare people, but yeah, open data is good. Just that this is one issue though, where a lot of government groups might balk at it. I reinforce that this was not properly de-identified. They had a bad encryption that was you could crack easily. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, it's nine o'clock, so um, we might have to to call it a night. Um, I want to um, take this opportunity to give a, a huge thanks to, um, to Jack um, and uh, to Claire, who have really taken us um, through the Cook's tour of data and, uh, and geospatial mapping and how that uh, will relate to health and given us plenty to think about going forward. So I hope that uh, some of us will be able to take that away and. Um, perhaps uh, applied in our own work or perhaps even um, come up with some inspiration for new initiatives. So join with me in thanking um, Claire and Jack. Thanks for downloading this Global Ideas Lab podcast on health, geography and data. I want to say a special thanks to the University of Melbourne and Oren for hosting and collaborating with us. I especially want to thank Jack and Claire and the team at Global Ideas for pulling everything together. 
As always, if you enjoy what we do, give us a shout on your social media channels, subscribe to our newsletter and our podcast series, and keep up to date with upcoming or past events at globalideas.org.au. It's important to stay engaged and promote constructive discussion about health and development so that more people can join the movement to achieve health equity in our world. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Globideas, G-L-O-B-I-D-E-A-S, to stay in contact. And thanks again for listening.